many reasons he came was to see exactly what mankind was like. And I think Jesus was curious. And so he goes out one time to the pool of Siloam. And he goes there and he sees this man there, uh, Bethsaida, excuse me. This man who had been ill for many, many decades. And he was a paralytic. And if you recall the story from John chapter 5, there was a pool there. And apparently the tradition was if the pool water stirred, if you were the first one into the water, then you'd be healed. And this man was there as a paralytic, had been there for over 30 years. And Jesus asked him the insightful question. He says, listen, do you want to get well? And it's a great study of our own heart sometimes because along the lines of why we come to church, and sometimes we have the same reasons for coming out to church, whether it's tradition or whether it's habit, whether it's, that's just what good Christian people do. Sometimes the question has to get asked, do you want to get well? Yeah. And I don't think Jesus was expecting him to answer, well, of course I want to get well. You know, I've been ill for 35 years. What do you think? Of course I want to get well. You know, those are the words that came from his lips, but not necessarily the truth born out in his actions. And the same can be said sometimes about me and sometimes about you. The question Jesus is going to ask is, do you want to get well? And for us today, my question to you, coupling those two together is, why have you come this morning? And if it's not to get well, you need to ask some serious questions about why you're coming to church at all. I love to praise and worship God, and thanks for Keith coming up here and sweating. That's awesome. I'm not judging him. I love the last song, and maybe some of you are judgmental too, because you know the praise is heard around the world, and everybody goes hallelujah. And, you know, many of us are uncomfortable with that kind of a thing. However, I will tell you that one thing we need to be comfortable with is dealing with our own hearts through the scriptures today. Let's take a read in Genesis chapter 29. We're going to continue on in our study of the book of Genesis. Now... Kind of the background of this story, as you all know, is that Jacob has now worked and he has two wives. Not just one, but two wives. You know, I'm always reminded one time in the Everybody Loves Raymond series. And there's this point one time when uh, his wife thinks he's having an affair. And I think his mother confronts him and says, are you having an affair? And he says, oh yeah, right. Now I have two women I can't make happy. Why would I do that? <laughs> And it's a great answer, right? I mean, the idea and the whole concept behind it is, wow, my goodness. Well, my man Jacob here puts himself exactly into that position. And of course, he comes early on and meets the, the well there, and the shepherds come up, and then this beautiful young woman comes up. You know, Rachel, she's the youngest, and she's tending the sheep. I don't know where her brothers were, if she had brothers. But she comes out, maybe a little bit of a tomboy to her step. She's maybe a little bit got some sunshine on her face. She's looking good. The Bible says she was beautiful. She was shapely, had a great figure. And my man Jacob couldn't help but fall in love. And he goes, man, that's the girl for me. Now, you may think that's shallow, but I had the same response with a beautiful young woman one time, too. My wife gave me the she came into the officer's club at the Naval Academy where I was going to school. Uh, and I, I was there in the officer's club. And I, I mean, I looked up and here she came. And it wasn't like there was exactly like this ray of sunshine around her head and halo. But it didn't take long for me to realize this one is special. And it's time to pursue the one that you really want to go after. And so our man Jacob, you know, sometimes people question that. They say, hey, what are you talking about one minute? You know, he just sees her at the well. And he's like, oh man, that's the one. Maybe it was a week or two that went by. I had a son by the name of Jeff one time. He went away. <laughs> Old Corps. 
It only took one week for him to come back and say, I've met the wife of my... I'm so excited. I said, how can you speak this way? You've known this woman for a week. He didn't know enough to challenge me and say, well, how long did you know your mom before you... <laughs> the right one, it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long. And I'm happy to say that here in July the 15th, it's going to be 38 years that we've been there. So we're really excited about it. And I think when you get to 40, we can stop being called newlyweds. Oh, that's going to be awesome. I'm really excited about that. You know, uh, he goes back and, of course, uh, works for seven years. That is love right there. And he marries this young, beautiful woman named Rachel. And then Laban, in a sneaky move, ends up substituting Leah there in the middle of the night at the end of this festival. And he ends up marrying the oldest daughter. Much to his surprise, he wakes up. Now he's got a wife by the name of Leah. And Leah, as we remember from the scriptures, is kind of the opposite. You know, Jeff brought out the point that the name may mean cow, which seems not very complimentary. Uh, the Bible describes her as having weak eyes, or, you know, there's some other descriptions that the Bible uses. Along the short of one, she doesn't appear to be very attractive, either in form or in face. Uh, and who knows what her character's like, but she's the oldest one. Now, I suspect, in contrast to Rachel, if you've studied birth order at all, you understand how people are. You know, the oldest one's always the most serious, right? The oldest child is always one that feels that he or she has all the responsibility. We see this with Mary and Martha in the New Testament, where you have these two women, and Martha, the oldest, she's the one, the same thing as we see here with Rachel and with Leah. You know, Martha's like, hey, i got to take care of things. What's going on? Jesus is here in town. we got to take care of And what's her younger sister Mary do? But sit at Jesus' feet. You know, there's something to be said for that, even in my own family. My son Jeff Throne, you know, when he was young growing up, his favorite phrase was, we should sue them, Dad. <laughs> Anytime someone that he felt there was some sort of social injustice that occurred in place, his response was, we should sue them. My middle son Eric, on the other hand, it was, it was so neat to see him. He was joy, bounce off the wall, happy. You know, he looks uphill and he sees dad and dad's not there. Mom's there. And if mom's not there, who's there? But my brother Jeff, who's going to sue us and protect us? <laughs> what do you worry? And he had a skip to his step and a lack of responsibility and, a, you know, a total, just a joy in life that befuddled and frustrated Jeff to no end and still does to this day. <laughs> I travel with Eric in business from time to time. And, you know, it is, it's the same thing. You know, as I've gotten older, I get more and more paranoid. Maybe Neil, he travels a lot, feels the same way. we got to get there three and a half hours ahead of time just in case there's a nuclear holocaust and, they, and the boarding comes early or something. I don't know what it is. I get anxious about getting there early to get anxious about getting there early. Of course, my son Eric, this young, younger son, if you will, he comes rolling up. looks like he, he, has, he literally pulled out of bed. You know, he's got a backpack over his shoulder, a t-shirt, pair of shorts on, comes strolling in 15 minutes before boarding. Oh, I can't live this way. I can't do it. But that's the way the younger kids are. And there's an attractiveness to this. Not only that, but again, Rachel being beautiful and also being shapely. You know why our man Jacob fell in love with her. So he falls in love and works seven more years. And of course, at the end of seven, he gets the second wife. And so now 14 years into this thing, he's got two wives. And here we join the story now, where life has kind of progressed into some sense of normalcy. Now, all kidding aside, we've all heard about this seven-year itch thing, right? Somehow in the world, you know, there's this idea that somewhere around seven years, we, we kind of get into a normal groove and a routine. The joy and the passion about marriage and 
you know, all the things that go along with that sort of subsides. And all of a sudden, here we are. We just arrived. And, you know, we're running around. We're doing our jobs. We're doing our careers. And all the romance maybe has gone out of the marriage. And I think we're kind of picking up here where that may have occurred between Rachel, Leah, and Jacob. We'll pick it up in chapter 29 in uh, verse 31. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She called, she named him Reuben. Where she said, it's because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. And she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I'm not loved, he gave me this one too. And so she named him Simeon. And again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have born him three sons. And so he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I'll praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her, and he said, Am I in a place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, Here is Bilhah, my maidservant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and that through her I too can build a family. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He's listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, I've had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she stopped having children, she took her maidservant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. And then Leah said, What good fortune! So she named him Gad. Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. And then Leah said, How happy I am! The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and he found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother, Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please, give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. And then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my maidservant to my husband. And so she named him Ishakar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. Amen? You know, you can see here we've got some marital problems. <laughs> kind of interesting to me, you know, before we get into this stuff. I mean, this is, I was trying to come up with another Bible story where there was such a, a, an argument between a husband and a wife. This is like the first one. Maybe, maybe uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, right? That would have turned into an argument. If it was, it was like, like, she gave me the fruit. You know, I can hear that after God left. That turned into a full-blown argument. I promise you, I've lived through that one. 
This one right here, the recorded down there is, I mean, they're arguing with each other. It's incredible. And I love this because this is part of the realness of the Bible. And so when I ask you, what do you come here this morning to get? I don't want you to feel like we're talking about heavy and heady theology here. The Bible is meant to be practical, and you and I are meant to see examples lived out in the Scriptures, and we're meant to take them to heart and say, I don't want to be this way. Or in the good examples, I want to be this way, I'm inspired to this way. But you can see, if you come today, and you don't have that attitude of that heart of, I've got to be different, I've got to be someone different, then you won't get out of this what God has intended for you. Now, speaking of God, we'll, we'll step aside just for a minute. I do want to talk about him in this narrative here. We're continuing our work through the book of Genesis. And, and uh, can't you feel the tension starting to build? Yeah. You know, as a, as, a, as a minor Bible scholar, or maybe you've just gone to Sunday school from time to time, these names start to ring a bell. Yeah. And God, through Abraham, has already promised that he was going to make a great nation. And out of him, many nations would come and populate the earth. And mankind would be saved through him. And then we see him have a son, Isaac. And Isaac has two sons in, in Jacob and Esau. And we start to see this, this funneling plan of God. And then earlier on, last week we saw that Jacob out in the field, resting down with his head on a stone for a pillow. God visits him on the stairway to heaven. And God tells him again exactly what his plan is going to be. He goes, I'm going to bring you to the promised land. And from you, many nations will come. And it kind of gives you shivers here because it's beginning to come into focus here. And we're starting to see, and if you're like me, you get eager here. And actually, I kind of trip over these personal times in here because you think, what's God going to do? You know ultimately this leads to Jesus. And you know ultimately this leads to you. But God is like a flower. It's being in blossom over sitting to see what it is. And you see the names here and you go, whoa, check it out. Judah, I know that name. Levi, that one sounds familiar to me. Simeon sounds familiar. Reuben, I've had that sandwich before. This stuff is so cool. Spiritual otherwise. Things come to mind, you know. Maybe New York, Delhi, Jewish, Reuben. What is this? There's some connection. Pastrami. What is it? I don't know. But the tension builds. Maybe it's in the book of Leviticus. They talk about how to make a sandwich on rye bread or pumpernickel or whatever else. No, I'm just kidding. But you get the point there. You know, my faith gets built when I read through these texts as well. My faith gets built because you realize we're a couple hundred years removed already. And God hadn't even, he hadn't even, he hadn't even started a good short of breath yet about creation, right? We see God back in the book of Genesis create all the heavens and the earth out of absolutely nothing. And he's got to rest after the sixth day. He goes, man, I'm going to step back, not because he's tired. I'm going to sit back and admire what I've created. We introduced him to that person of God who is this physical creator of all things. And now we see God's hand back at work again. And what he's creating is the family of God. What he is starting to work here, primitive, is the salvation of mankind. And you see, you heard that a song where it talks where God has wrought this great salvation. This is the picture that we're seeing here early on. And you see God saying, Jacob. Even though you're a deceiver, even though you're a mama's boy, even though you're a liar, even though you lack responsibility from you, I am going to bring forth a great nation out of these 12 tribes. It's awesome. And it starts to come into focus. And again, your heart should burn when you realize God's above all the generations. He's outside of time. For God to straddle from this point in time to where you are today, it doesn't even cause him to break a sweat. He sees it all at one time. He understands what he's doing. And all of this 
relates to Jesus and ultimately to you. We see here, there's another tribe born, Judah. We go, whoa, that gives us really goosebumps. We go, I like that one. Judah's awesome. That's the tribe of David. That's the tribe of Jesus. Hey, hey, line of Judah. And we realize that the string that God had planned all along. And as we move forward in the Bible from Genesis, you see, you see books like Ruth. And you see Ruth from the tribe of Judah in Bethlehem. And Ruth becomes the father of Obed, who becomes the grandfather of David. And the line, the lineage going all the way back here to our man Jacob. You know what I'm saying? God is moving. So, you know, I want you to think about it for a second. You don't have to worry about what God can do or God will do. Now, let me say that again. You don't have to worry about what God can do and what God will do. If we're talking about thousands of years B.C. to thousands of years A.D. that we are in right now, God will do what God will do. God has the power. God is outside of time. God can rot whatever He wants to rot out of creation. Spiritually, physically, He can take someone like Jacob and turn him into a great nation. He can take someone like Judah and turn him into a great nation. What do you think the chances are that He can work in your life? What do you think the chances are that God did not just make the physical creation, but here, the family creation, do you think He can change your marriage, change who you are, make you something different? you think that's a problem for God? I don't. So if God doesn't have a problem, who do you think the problem lies with? It's you. You don't want it bad enough. You're not changing because you really don't want it bad enough. When I ask you the question, what you come here this morning for, it's a very pointed question. Yeah. If you sat up here to keep a seat warm and being cheered by the Bible, you've come to the wrong place. If it isn't about change, you're in the wrong place. And I don't mean physical structure. I mean in the family of God. Wow. One of the overarching things I see here with all three of these characters that we will study out here in a second. Rachel, Leah, and yes, even Jacob is... They don't change. They don't change. You know, let's, let's, let's talk about Leah first. I, you know, I get it. Maybe you do too. Maybe you had a younger sister growing up that was prettier, faster, funnier, cuter, dated all the guys in school. And maybe you were the older one. Maybe you were the responsible one. And you always did the right thing. And she got into trouble all the time and never seemed to catch wind for it, you know? Dad loved her the most. She was the cute one bouncing on his knee. You were the one having to do the laundry and clean the house. That's Leah. And your parents are in the cow. They're like, thanks for the love. Appreciate it. You know, Leah, if I look at her life, I think, well, what does she grow up to be? She is classic. She's classic. She's insecure. And she's always seeking approval. Did you notice that? We have here 12 sons, or 11 sons born here. There's one more left to come, which is in the future. We'll read that later on. But for right now, if you count, we'll find out there's 11. And this happens over the course of 15 years, you think? 11 years? 10 years? And every step of the way, with every child, which is, what does she say? Oh, now I've had a fourth son for my husband. Surely he'll love me now. Oh, I've had a fifth son. Surely my husband will give me approval. Oh, I've had, oh, oh. And it's like on and on and on over decades she's constantly looking for approval here. 
Where should her security have come from? But God. You know, her theology is all messed up, too. Yeah. I mean, she sits down and she sits and she's... This whole thing with the maidservants, you know, very popular thing in that culture there, by the way. Again, this is pre-law. We don't have the book of Moses yet. We've got no Bible to go by. Polygamy is relatively common in those days, in those areas. And if you were short on kids and you had to, had to make the family line move forward, it was not uncommon by marriage contract to take the maidservant of your wife and to bring progeny from that and have that continue the family line. So we can't be too appalled at what we see here, that historically this has probably happened quite a bit. But the issue to me is this idea is, how many sons does she have by Jacob, by natural birth? And then all of a sudden she needs to have more. Yeah. She's like, I can't do it, I need more, I need more, I need more. And she's always looking for approval versus having this confidence that comes from God. I don't know which one you are in this story, whether it's Jacob, whether it's Leah, whether it's Rachel. If it's Leah, I, I really want to challenge you. you. You've got to get over that approval. Yeah. Seeking. You've got to get over that. And all of us have this in there. Yeah. Remember when I first became a disciple, you know, I, I, I'd come out of the military. And one of the things that had been, you know, beat into me in the military was, of course, this idea of submission. What do you learn? Your commanding officer tells you to do something, you do it. You get a phone call. Says we're going to transfer you. You're moving from San Diego to Lamore, California. You don't say, well, let me get back to you. Let me talk to my family back. Let me talk to my church leaders, see if there's a church there. Look, you know, it's just, it's, it's like you have given over your authority to make decisions when you're in the military. You don't get the chance to say, I don't want to do this, or this isn't healthy for me spiritually. Even on the battlefield. You go, you do, you take, that's your job. You don't have time to go, let me think about my conscience for a second here. It doesn't work that way in the military. And what it beats into you is a submissive spirit there where you're in attention and you go, yes sir, no sir, I'll do that. And it's the same kind of thing. I can remember when I first became a Christian and people said things like, hey Bill, I'd like to move to Los Angeles and be part of the mission team down there. You know what my response was? Ready to go. Was it good for my family? I don't know. Did I go with the right spirit? I think I did halfway. No, no, let me, you know, I'm not, there's not a half in this one. I went with the right spirit, okay? I went down to Los Angeles after I became a Christian in San Francisco because I wanted to love God and do the mission team. Did I do it out of a sense of obligation and duty and this idea of the same military mindset that I want to please my commanding officer? I think I did. Look, you're, you, you've got to pray hard and you've got to seek after God's will and you've got to make a decision. I'm going to do it God's way. If you live like Leah does here, where you're always looking and seeking the approval of other people, you will be led into sin, and you'll be led away from God, and God's going to bring you to a point where you're going to have to make tough, hard decisions based on conviction, not feeling. And if you're wrapped up in what other people think about you, and about what you think you should do, and make other people happy, you will never do the right thing when the time really gets tough. We cannot be like Leah. You cannot be insecure. You cannot be a person who's always seeking approval of those around you. You have to get approval from one person, and that's God. Question. You ever see Leah pray to God about what the right thing to do is? You know, even this idea of here, take my maidservant, have sex with her so we can have children. It's this cause and effect thing where the baby comes from the maidservant, and what does she ascribe that to? She goes, oh... Well, clearly God has vindicated me for, you know, giving my maidservant to my husband. Where did she come up with that conclusion from? 
Yeah, we chop them. Because all these people have the same kind of response. But isn't that 20th century Christianity today? Yeah. 21st century Christianity? Sure. We don't seek the will of God. We, we, don't, we don't get on our knees and pursue, actively seek, want to know what the will of God is. If we're really religious and we're a good religious person, when something happens in our lives, we think we're spiritually go, clearly that's God. I've got friends of mine at work. I run straight commission sales. And so someone will do a big deal at work and the religious people in the office, they feel obligated or else somehow God's going to curse them if they don't go. The Lord be praised. A deal came through clearly from the hand of God. Right? You know what I'm talking about. Because you feel the same way. It's almost superstitious, isn't it? It's like if something good happens in my life, I've got to go, oh, that's from God. Or else somehow if I don't give glory and credit to God. But it's such a passive way to view your relationship with God. Why aren't you on your knees saying, God, what would you like me to do? How do you know that big deal that you just made had a lot of money in it didn't, wasn't from Satan? Yeah. You know, the Bible does say money is the root of all evil. You think it's possible maybe that that's a temptation or a trap that something can set in front of you? Yeah. Oh, no, clearly from God. Praise the Lord. Bless God. No, you don't know because you haven't prayed about it. You haven't been active in your pursuit of God. Instead, you're like Leah and you're passive. And worse yet, you're trying to make those around you happy. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be that way. How about Rachel? Here's another one. Man, Rachel. Somehow or another, well, not somehow or another, again, in my own life, I see Rachel, you know, she is this person, and I was the youngest son. Now, my three sisters and my older brother, all of them accused me of being the favorite. I don't know what they're talking about. Just because I was the youngest, the cutest, the fastest, the happiest, the funniest. They all, they all accused me of being the, the, the favorite. And what's that? I can't hear you. Honey. No, it's, you're not. But for me, you know, I think through my life is, is growing up, it sort of forms who you are. And you sort of get used to being the one that wins all the time. You always get your way. And if you don't get your way, you know, sometimes it's not even all that bad. Now, Avery asked me to share this story with you when I was a kid growing up. Uh, my parents were Brady once they got married uh, when I was nine years old. And at one point, I remember I got into trouble with my mom. And so my mom said, it was my biological mom, said to my father, uh, who was my non-biological father, just got married but adopted us all. She says, you need to discipline that boy. He's done wrong. And so, you know, back into the master bedroom you go, and my dad pulls out the belt. Right? Yeah. Let's get in there. You get yourself a woman. I was like, he doesn't talk like that, but that's for effect, right? And we get out of that, and I goes, okay. Close the door. The rest of the kids were outside, and my mom were out there like, people, I thought that was the favorite. He's going to get it now. He did wrong, he's gotten caught. And thank goodness he finally has. And my dad goes, I can't spank you, man. I can't do this. I'm going to hit the bed with the belt, and you need to cry. You ready? Well, here we go. Poop. Ah! Oh! Poop. Ah! Oh! Poop. Ah! Oh! Like well, I got a crocodile tears. I'll never do that again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But that's who I was. You know, like, oh, here we go, man. I'm good. Repentance is awesome, you know. Not, nothing like it. And this is Rachel. Rachel doesn't suffer a day in her life. You know, what's crazy to me is that Rachel, she comes across as spoiled because 
you know, she sees her older sister having kids, and what's her response? I'm so happy for you. This is wonderful. She pulls Jacob in, grabs him by the coat, you know, like, you better give these children or else I'll die. What kind of a person does that? <laughs> and then later on, it's amazing to me, she has two children, and what is her response? She goes, oh man, I've been in a great battle with my sister, and I have won! Like, what battle are you in? What battle was it? I mean, have the most kids, he lost that. She's already had four or five, he got two. How can you say you won the battle? But in her mind, it's like, I've been in a great, so she calls it a struggle, right? I've been in a great struggle. And she names her kid, that's his name, Struggle. Because she's in this competitive mindset, trying to get what she needs to have. You know, sometimes, well, we're this way as a Christian, too. And we're this way with God, quite frankly. We think we deserve all this stuff. We think we deserve everything. We think we deserve these blessings. And when they don't come our way, we get an attitude. And she's got an attitude towards her husband, Jacob. But you get an attitude towards God when things don't go your way. Right. I can't tell you the number of people that I've counseled as Christians who said to me, man, I didn't get into that school. I can't be a God. And on a more serious note, I had a miscarriage. There cannot be a God. How would God let me have a miscarriage? I can't be faithful as a Christian anymore. I didn't get what I wanted. I didn't get this job. And how about this one? I got this lousy husband. I got this lousy wife. You're telling me God loves me when he's giving me all these bad things? Why, why do you think God promised you anything? What, what, what do you think? And again, let's, let's move away from the stuff for just a second. Let's talk about your heart. Did you even think that way? I, I want you to understand that chronologically... I think back in those days, it probably took about nine months to have a baby. It takes about nine months now to have a baby. Start adding these things up, and you'll recognize that if you've got 11 kids getting born here, you're talking 10, 11, 15 years, whatever the time period was between all these kids getting born. So these attitudes and these conditions of the heart that Leah and Rachel have, they're not changing. There's no repentance. This is stretching out over time. And Leah, when she has her last baby, makes that statement. Oh, man, now, at last, my husband. And what, what makes you think, after all these years, he hasn't loved you that much yet, he's going to love you now after you've had his last son? Now, where it comes down to land for you and me is, when we look like this, Rachel and Leah, and it's taken us years to repent of this stuff, and we're not overcoming it in our lives, and we're not dealing with this sin in our hearts, what are you coming here for? Why did you come to church today? That's probably the most indicting thing to me about these people is that they don't change and they don't repent. Shall I leave Jacob off the hook? You know, there's, there's two genders here in the audience. There's male and there's female. And I really can identify with a Jacob character, can't you? Oh, I know you can because I'm looking at you guys out here. I know all you guys. I've been in counseling times as you are. How would you summarize my man Jacob? What's he really like? Warm, soft, tender, understanding, compassionate. This is another translation, right? Not this one. How, how would you like it if your wife came up to you and said, Hey, listen, I'm just really, I'm struggling. My sister's having these babies. That's a natural reaction. Wouldn't you think he'd sit down and say, honey, I know what you're feeling. This is tough. 
I'll do everything I can in my power. I don't know what I can do, but I'll continue to, you know, get together with you. We'll, we'll spend time as much as we can. There's no compassion for Jacob. He strikes me as a typical male in a relationship. He does. I mean this. In a marriage relationship. He, he's unemotional. He's distant. He's in, he, he seems to be somehow or another just engaged in his job. And when he comes home, he's too tired. He's not sensitive. He doesn't want to hear about your feelings. Am I in the place of God? I mean, come on now. Get off my back. I work all day long. I come home. I, it's not my fault you can't have children. Sorry about that. You know, Jacob is this guy where I think, you know, to me, he, he looks like me. He looks like me. You know, I've shared with you, when we first got married, you know, it was the reason we were working on a divorce after nine years of marriage was because I am Jacob. And then after we got married, I can remember as a disciple, nine years later, finally getting baptized and feeling like there's hope for this marriage. And then my wife saying, there's hope for this marriage. My husband can change. But it doesn't happen overnight. I can remember getting challenged in a, in a discipling time early on in our marriage. And uh, one of the brothers said, you know, you've got to think about your wife during the course of the day. Do you ever think about your wife while you're at work? I'm like, no, I'm at work. Why would I think about my wife? I don't understand. Well, yeah, all the women are laughing. The guys aren't. You're like, oh, no. come on now. The truth of the matter is, I didn't think about my wife. And so we used to have date timers in those days. These foldable things, you know, little dates on them. And literally, I would write in there and think about a relief today. In my daytime, and make sure that I did every day. Because I was Jacob in the flesh, man. And then I had to evolve from that where I was like, okay, 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 what's next? I've got to bring encouragement gifts every week. And so then I started to develop, and this is all mechanical. Brothers, you can learn. This is okay. This is mechanical. So, and I've told Avery this before, I think, so I hope I don't spoil it for her. But there's a cycle that I hit. You know what I'm talking about? Hit the cycle. Why? There's a cycle I hit. It's like candy bar, Diet Coke, back in those days, People Magazine, you know, flowers. It's like, okay, now you got four or five of these things. So I can just rotate through them, man. Like, what week is this? We're through. First week, candy bar. Awesome, you know. I get candy bar coming out there. Second week, oh, People Magazine. Awesome. And a Diet Coke. That's awesome. Uh, and then the card, you know, and then you have after that flowers. So figure this out. You got five weeks. You know what I mean? She won't remember the fifth week what you did five weeks ago. So the cycle rolls itself through. And somewhere along the top process, you become sensitive. And then you got to learn those other things. Kind of like when the, when, the, when the argument starts to flare up right when you get home from work. Kind of like this situation with Jacob. He comes down and he's there and, you know, she grabs him by the lapel. Give me kids or I'll die. You know, you realize, okay, there's something deeper going on here. It's not about the kids, maybe, at this point in time. Yeah. And I learned that. You know, I wrote this in my daytime. It's like, take a breath, take the first shot, don't react, you know what I mean? It's just like, boom, come on, take care of that. And then ask the question, honey, what are you feeling? Now, that's a real foreign thing to do, but this is what you have to learn to do. And I, I start doing this, I go, okay, great. Tough, whoop. All right, what are you feeling? And then the real issue with verbals at the top, and we begin to have dialogue, and it was incredible. Yeah. But it's not something you learn if you're stuck and you don't want to change. Yeah. Yeah. If you think you're okay where you're at, brothers, you're not. You need to repent. Because if you think of one overarching theme throughout the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, what is it except for reconciliation? 
It's all about bringing people together, being knit together, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus died on the cross for us to be reconciled to God. How dare us not be reconciled with each other, whether it's a spouse or other folks in the fellowship here. That's the one thing you see here as well. Not only do they not repent, but they never reconcile. They never talk about their true feelings. They never go after it. They never take time to say, listen, let's get after this thing. Why is it you're talking eight to ten years later, you got this issue with the mandrakes? Reuben goes out and he gets the mandrakes and he brings them back. And of course, you know, you see here in the account, Rachel, bless her heart, at least she's nice about it. She says, hey, listen, Leah, can, can, can I have some of your son's mandrakes? And what's Leah's response? Are you joking me? You stole my husband after all of that. You expect me to give you mandrakes? He's like, girl, that was like 10 years ago. <laughs> you still working through that? The answer is yes. There's no reconciliation. Yeah. We harbor resentments. Yeah. We harbor hurts. We harbor things that are held against us. With people in the fellowship, with your wife and your spouse, and you don't talk about them, there's no reconciliation. Yeah. That's what Jesus died on the cross for. And you're stuck in your chair and you don't reconcile to your sister, your brother, your wife, or your husband. These guys are great examples and I get to heaven. I hope you and I will thank them all and go, look, you, know, I, you, you were a good, bad example, but you brought repentance because I like to see what not to do with my heart. What did you come here for this morning? You, you didn't come here for a Fourth of July sermon, I hope. You came to hear the word of God and challenge your heart. Because you are either Jacob, or Rachel, or Leah, or all three. And if you haven't changed, if you're sitting there and you're the same person that you were one year ago, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, the problem is not with God. The problem is not with God's Word. The problem is not with the power of God to change your life. The problem is with you. The number one problem is you haven't sought after God. And that's kind of one of the final points I want to leave you with here is, you know, if you're Jacob, and you're out in the desert there, and you saw God, and you saw the stairway to heaven, and He spoke to you, if you really cared about changing these things in your life, do you think you might have gone back to that stone that you set up as a temple? Why doesn't it? Because his biggest sin was he wasn't seeking God. Wow. Yeah. And that's your sin as well. Yeah. See, there's a difference between self-help and trying to get your character changed yeah. and get things fixed in your life. There's a difference between trying to become a better person than really seeking after God. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus says you seek after his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. The promise is that you need to seek God first and foremost. I'd like to think I'm spiritual enough, or got tired of getting my head beat in at home, or tired of having this thing not work out. I would have said, I gotta make a trip to the desert, man. I gotta get out of here. I gotta go someplace. I've gotta find God. I've gotta fall on my knees and pray to God. I gotta make a decision. I'm gonna go after this with all of my heart, and that's what you need to do. Because too many of you that I know here aren't changing day after day, year after year, whether you're studying the Bible, or whether you've been a Christian for one day, or one year, or ten, or even thirty. You're not seeking God anymore. And that is what it's all about. Yeah. And we'll start seeing here more and more admonitions. 
from Deuteronomy through the rest of the Bible, where the number one thing for you and I to do is to seek God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if Jacob would have turned on that time and gone back, he may have come back and been a spiritual husband and discipled his, his, his wives and called them to seek God. And their marriage could have been something glorious. And as a result, their family might have been something glorious and some, instead of something dysfunctional, which we will see in just a minute. Because the consequences of you not repenting, number one, your life continues to stink. Yeah. Number two, you influence those people that are closest to you. And number three, if you have a family, heaven forbid, they will imitate your example as bad as it may be. You have got to seek after God. Let's close over in 2 Peter. Turn with me, please. 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends... Since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Brothers and sisters, seek after God. Make every effort. Don't be satisfied with who you are. Please, do not follow the example of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. But be challenged to be different. Why did you come here this morning? I pray was it for your heart to be changed and your lives as well. Thank you for your attention. Amen.